Um, you know, there are a lot of things that you look back upon in your life and you see as that was just a fun and very special time. One of the times in my life happened in the summer between my 8th and ninth grade year. My dad took me, my mom, my brother, two cousins, and an aunt. Yes, if it's sounding like the Griswolds, that's exactly what it was. We loaded in this conversion van to take a trip that dad had planned meticulously to go out west for two weeks in a van. Now, my dad was a civil engineer, and if you know engineering people, you know exactly what he did. He mapped every portion out, how far we needed to go each day. He kept a little spiral notebook in his pocket when we would stop and fill up with gas. You know what Arnold Herod did? He wrote down the mileage, how far it had been, how far it had gone, so he could figure up the gas mileage. The amazing thing was, as we were cleaning out the house, we found those notebooks. I know what gas mileage we averaged between Memphis and Oklahoma City. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a great trip. We had our goal in mind. Now, we had our goal, but there were still things that happened that were unplanned. Who knew you would encounter snow in Wyoming in June? We didn't. Or tornado warnings outside of St. Louis. But always the goal was in front of us. Where we were going. What our ultimate goal was. And we kept traveling toward that. In like manner, we're starting a journey through the Gospel of John. And this morning, I want us to see what our goal is. Now, there will be times that we're going to take unexpected detours. We may take four weeks out of this series to, to study something else for a brief period of time. But we're going to come back to this journey probably over the next few years. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so where are we going? That's why I wanted us to start in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Let's keep the end in mind. Because John wasn't just writing a paper to fill up 10,000 words or however many words the gospel is. He's writing for this reason. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The very end of 31 gives the goal. He wants the reader to come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and is the Son of God. But John's not content for us to sit back and just to know those facts. The book of John is not a, a book of trivia where you memorize John 3.16 and a few odds and ends. No, the whole purpose of the book is to bring the reader or the person that hears this book read to the point of believing. John is writing to create action within the believer because in the biblical understanding of belief, it is not about cognitive action. Now that's a part of it. You have to know something about the object in which you're believing. That's a part. But that is not the end of it. Believing scripturally means you not only know facts, but you are willing to act upon those facts. You're willing to step out and to live life based upon the reality that you know. A great example of this is a man by the doctor, name of Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane. 
great surgeon. In 1921, he was 60 years old and had been doing surgeries for 37 years. But this doctor was not ready to stop. He was very concerned about something. Dr. Kane was concerned about the use of general anesthesia. He saw the effects that were happening. He saw people that would wake up paralyzed or when they did wake up, they were just groggy and never the same. So Dr. Kane started to research this idea of local anesthesia. What would happen instead of putting the whole person out? You just kind of numbed the area where the surgery was taking place. And he was researching, he was learning, he was developing ideas about this. But the question was always, would it work? And who in the world would be willing to try this? Well, the answer came on the morning of February the 15th, 1921. An appendectomy was scheduled in the surgery room. Dr. Kane had done over 4,000 surgeries. So quite frankly, it was really no big deal. Everything was prepped and ready. But the nurses could not believe what they heard next when Dr. Kane said, I want everybody to step away from the table. He decided that he was going to do the surgery by himself. You know what's so amazing about that? He was the one that needed the appendectomy. He decided he was going to use a local anesthetic that morning on himself and take out his own appendix. Don't try that at home. <laughs> Don't. And it worked. He successfully removed his own appendix under local anesthesia. Now think about what's going on here. He learned the facts about it. Oh, he believed that it would work, but you know where the proof of his belief came? Was he willing to operate on himself? He was willing to be the guinea pig. That is faith. It's not just knowing the facts. It's not just saying they're a good idea. It's saying I'm willing to stake everything on this truth. John wants to lead us to that same faith in Jesus Christ to say, I don't want you just to know facts about Jesus. I don't want you to just to know he was the word incarnate. I want you to believe that so your life will be transformed by that. I don't want you to just know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever should believe in him would never die. I don't want you to just know that. That. I want you to live that each and every day that God's love is transforming and redeeming. That absolute trust in Jesus is the only way to have life. And the stakes for this are very high. Church, the stakes are high. This is dealing with life and death. Heaven and hell. This is dealing with where will you spend eternity, either in the rapturous joy of the presence of God, or will you spend it in hell under the wrath and the condemnation of God? This issue of who Jesus is is no small point. So throughout the gospel, John wants us to see clearly who he is, and that's why John uses the word signs. You'll see it, verse 30. Jesus did many other signs. Signs are miracles. John's the only gospel that refers to the miracles as signs. These are actions that Jesus did to point to something beyond himself. You see, the miracle, the sign, is not the main point. It's like a billboard. You don't stop at the billboard. What do you think a family would feel like if dad said, You know what? Here's our family trip. We're going to Disney World. Woo! You load up the car. 
You drive down the interstate. You take Interstate 4. You come there outside of Orlando and you take the exits on Disney World's own highway. And you come to the sign. Walt Disney World over the road. The place where dreams come true. And dad pulls the car over. Kids, get out. We're getting our picture. We're at Disney World. They get their picture in front of the sign. And he says, get back in the car. We're going home. Because he's a smart man. He wants to have money to eat when he gets back home. We've not been to Disney World. Yeah, we've been at the sign. No, you've not. That's the beginning point. That's to say you're here. The miracles are not the stopping point. And you know why? You know why people stop at the miracles? The same reason our fictitious dad does. To believe anymore is costly. Oh, I believe Jesus walked on the water. Well, will you step out of the boat then? Oh, now let's not get radical. I believe that Jesus fed the 5,000, that he can do all things. Then will you live based upon that? No, the cost is too high. You see, the signs are not the end of the story. They are not the conclusion that we want to reach. The miracles done by Jesus are to point to the truth of who he is. That's why John goes to pains to say Jesus did many other signs. More than we could imagine. Look over one chapter at the end of verse 25 in chapter 21. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. We only get the tip of the iceberg of what Jesus did. I wonder if one day in glory Jesus will say, let me tell you something that I did they didn't write about. Or if one of the disciples will poke us and say, you know what, this wasn't in the book. But I was there. And I saw this. Because look what he says back in chapter 20, verse 30. He did them in the presence of the disciples. And that shows part of the uniqueness of Christianity. Our faith is based upon historical events. Not mythological stories. You say, well, what, what makes the difference? The fact there are witnesses called and there are written testimonies of what they saw. John is not trying to hide things here. Who saw these miracles? Well, we're not really sure who saw them, but we know they happened. That's not the Gospels. The Gospels say he did them in the presence of the disciples, and implied is you can go ask them. Same thing with the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead and appeared, even up to 500 people. And Paul says most of them are still alive. Implied, go ask them what they saw. There are eyewitnesses to verify this. So instead of trying to catalog all of the miracles that Jesus did, John focuses upon seven that lead to the biggest sign of all. So there are really eight signs in the gospel, but seven that are clearly identified, and the eighth being the cross and the resurrection. That is the sign above all signs. But seven lead to that. Now up on the screen, you'll see these signs that are listed. The water to wine. John chapter 4, the healing of an official son. John 5, the healing of a crippled man by the pool of Bethesda. John 6, that should be feeding of the 5,000. I'm not practicing biblical reductionism. Um, I just forgot to add the other zero. Jesus fed the 5,000. John 6, walking on the water. John 9, healing a man that was blind from birth. And then John 11, which in many ways is the crux of the whole book. It's the, the miracle to which the most space is dedicated in the entire gospel. 
the raising of Lazarus from the dead. All those are leading up to John 19 with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the thing is, these signs are given, but the way the gospel is structured is this. You have the water and the wine, and then Jesus engages in a discourse to explain who he is. The water turned to wine, and now Jesus begins talking about in John 3, answering questions with Nicodemus about new birth, how you can be transformed. John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. Later in John chapter 6, Jesus begins talking about how he is the bread of life. Each of the signs is followed by a discourse, a discussion, an explanation of what that sign means. Why? John doesn't want us to miss the point. Here's the miracle, boom, here is what it means, now you are to believe. That's the pattern of the gospel. Action, explanation, belief. And all of these signs are meant for us to come to the reality of who Jesus is. Notice, these are written so that you may believe. These signs point to the reality that you may put your absolute trust in, absolute dependency in Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, in our day and age, there are many who will say, well, it really doesn't matter who Jesus is. As long as you believe something about him and that works for you, fine. There's a Hebrew term that describes that type of belief. Bakar, bakar, which means a whole bunch of hogwash. It matters who Jesus is. Identity matters. It can't be nebulous. Holiday Inn Express really brought a lot of attention to itself by a string of commercials of somebody who engages in an act they normally couldn't do and they did it because they slept at the Holiday Inn. While I'm on this theme of doctors, one of those commercials shows a surgeon and he's working, he's working and then he lifts up his hands and he looks at the nurse and says, okay, you may close now. And then he pulls down his mask and the nurses go, oh, you're not Dr. Stewart. He says, no, I'm not. But I did sleep at a Holiday Inn Express last night. Now, let me ask you, if you had a friend going into surgery and you found out that surgeon was really not a surgeon and you confronted your friend, oh, he's no surgeon. And the friend says, I know, I know, I know. But his face just makes me feel at ease. And he's confident. He's confident. It makes me feel comfortable. But he's not a surgeon. I know. Would you really say, okay, that's fine? No, you wouldn't. You know why? You'd say, that's not his identity. He can't do that. The identity of Jesus is crucial. And this is why. If Jesus is not who he says he is, he's a liar. Can you believe a liar? If Jesus is lied at one point, how can we have confidence of him at another point? It is truly an all or nothing equation. We can't pick and choose what parts did Jesus fib on and what parts is he accurate on. Because if he lied about one thing, it brings into question everything else. And if he is not the way, the truth, and the life believer, you and I are wasting our lives. That's what Paul said. If he's not resurrected, we're foolish. If Jesus is not the word made flesh, we are basing our eternal destiny on something that is a fabrication. So the identity of Jesus is crucial. That's why John wrote this. And he wants you and I to look at the signs and to come to two conclusions about Jesus. The first is this, that Jesus is the Christ. 
That's the first one there in verse 20, 31. Jesus is the Christ. Now, this is one of those times we have to remind ourselves that the phrase, the Christ, is a title. It is not the last name of Jesus. It would be more appropriate to translate that, the Christ, throughout the entire book. Now, the idea of the Christ is the Messiah. Christ is the phrase used in Greek for Messiah. So what in the world is a Messiah? A Messiah is the hero. He's the one who rescues. He is the, the hero who comes in, who saves those that are in peril when they can't save themselves. The Messiah is the hero who comes, who sets things right, who delivers those that are in trouble. It's the longing within all of us that there is a Messiah that will rescue us. That's why we love movies that have this, these happy endings where the hero comes in and he has powers and he does things beyond imagination. We long for that person who can come into our lives and be the hero. And the scripture points to Jesus as that deliverer. John starts from the very beginning laying down the path to lead us to that conclusion. Up on the screen, you'll see on the left, John 1.41. First chapter. Andrew has met Jesus. And Andrew goes and he finds his brother Simon. And he says to him, what? We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. From the very beginning, John wants us to start thinking in terms of, who is Jesus? Why does Andrew say he's the Messiah? Now he makes an interesting connection. Just four verses later, we read of Philip. Philip finds Nathanael. He says to Nathanael, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. I believe there's a connection between Messiah and him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. And then John, as this gospel unfolds, goes to great lengths to show us that Jesus is the Messiah who is greater than than Moses. Even though Abraham is recognized as the father of the faith, Moses was recognized as the hero who led the Exodus, who got people out of slavery, or God used Moses to do that. So Moses becomes this, this paradigm, this model of what the hero should be like. Well, guess what? John wants us to see that Jesus is the hero who supersedes what Moses can do. And he starts out in John 1.14 where it says that the, Jesus came and he tabernacled among us. Moses was the one who built a tabernacle for God's glory. But Jesus is the tabernacle of God's glory in the flesh. This pattern continues all throughout the book. The very first sign that Moses did in front of Pharaoh was this. He turned water to blood transformation first thing very first sign so you will let my people go God works through Moses turns water into blood guess what the very first sign that John records in his gospel Jesus transforms water not into blood but something much sweeter he changes water to wine Moses turns it to blood and God's people are set free. Jesus does one better. He turns it into something sweet and God's people are set free. And this, this pattern continues all throughout the gospel. Moses is associated with manna that comes down from heaven to feed in the wilderness. Jesus feeds 5,000. 5,000. 
And then he says, you're waiting for bread to come down from heaven. He says, guess what? I'm here and I am the bread of life. He outdoes and over supersedes what Moses did. Moses struck a rock and water comes out to slake the thirst of the Israelites. Jesus in John 7 says, if you are thirsty, come to me and I will give you drink. I am the rock that gives water. Jesus is the Messiah who brings complete deliverance. So that when we are enslaved by our own sins, we can look to Jesus. Jesus is the one who will lead us in the exodus out of those sins. When we are burdened down, and who of us does not know the burdens of this world, we look to Jesus as the Messiah who can bear the weight of those burdens and strengthen us when we feel the weight of our sin and are wondering, who can set me free? John wants you and I to know that Jesus is the way to freedom. When you and I feel the pains of death and we weep and we grieve just like those that are around Lazarus' tomb, he wants you to know, I am the resurrection and the life. Even if one is dead, yet shall he live. He is greater than Moses because Jesus is the Messiah. That's the whole point. He says, I want you to see that throughout the entire book. And then he leads to something even better. That's what I like about the Bible. Even when you think it can't get good or it does. What does he say next? He is the Son of God. Now that's a phrase that has been greatly attacked by critics of the faith. Some will say that that's based on the idea of a pagan myth where the God, quote unquote, somehow interacts with a, a female on earth and has a child. And Christians are borrowing that myth. Others accuse God of being sexually immoral with this in order to attack the veracity of the Gospels. The point of that title is not biology at all. The point of the phrase is to describe who Jesus is. And who he is uniquely. Now bear with me on this. In the Hebrew language upon which the Son of God is based. They didn't have a lot of adjectives. You know we use different adjectives to describe things. Hebrew language doesn't. So this is how they would describe something. If someone's going through a lot of affliction. They would describe them as the son of affliction. It's a way of saying boy they characterize affliction. If they were under wrath, they would be the son of wrath. In fact, there were, in Deuteronomy, some boys that were causing a lot of problems. And they were getting ready to undergo corporal punishment. And the book of Deuteronomy refers to them as sons of the beatings. They were in a lot of trouble. That phrase, son of, describes a person who exhibits the characteristic that's being used. For example, in the New Testament... James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they're referred to as sons of thunder. you got to love that nickname. It makes it sound like they should have leather jackets with sons of thunder as they get on their camels or whatever. You know. You know why they were called that? It's believed they had quick tempers. To be a son of thunder meant that you spouted off at the mouth fairly quickly, angry. So what does it mean to say that someone is the son or a son of God? And by the way, that phrase is... It's used of Jesus in a unique way, but it's also used of others. For example, in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as a son of God. Up on the screen, you'll see Exodus chapter 4. Moses says to Pharaoh, or God says for Moses to say to Pharaoh, thus, you, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Israel's called the son of God. 
Why? Because Israel was supposed to, as a people, demonstrate the total character of God. Show who he is. And Israel failed miserably. You know, in the book of Matthew, it says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Why? Because peacemakers demonstrate the character of God. They show a little bit of who God is. But when it comes to Jesus, he is in a class all by himself. Jesus is unique as the Son of God. None greater than. Upon the screen, you're going to see John chapter 1, verse 14. In a few weeks, we'll get to dive into that more in depth. But look, I want to point out something here. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dealt as tabernacled. Going back to Moses. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son. Now the word only there is a Greek word, monogenes. It's unique. It's only used one time in the Gospel of John and a handful of times in Luke. Some of your translations will read the only begotten Son because it's a difficult word to translate. It could be translated unique, one of a kind, no one else like him. When we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we are saying He is unlike any other, any other part of creation because only Jesus is fully God in the flesh. It's a way of describing the incarnation. You want to see what God is like? Look at Jesus. In Israel, you caught a glimpse of it, but they failed. In the church, we fall short as children of God, but Jesus is the Son of God who perfectly shows us what God is like and who God is like. That's why Jesus Jesus could say, Philip, don't you know it? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's why Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the perfect representation, the perfect icon of who God is. He is the unique Son of God, demonstrating the glory of God as only He can as God in the flesh. You see, it's that word glory that becomes key. The signs emphasize that Jesus is the Son of God because Jesus alone shows the glory of God. Once again, look at that. We've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. And that Son is full of grace and truth. This word glory serves as bookends in talking about these signs. In John chapter 2, upon the screen in verse 11, after the waters turned to wine, he says Jesus did, this is the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. He showed His glory. He showed the character of God, the power of God in turning water into wine. Now, there are only two signs that's associated, the word glory is associated with. John 2 and then in John 11 with Lazarus. Up on the screen, you'll see both verses. Jesus heard that Lazarus is sick and He says this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God. So the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus is on the scene talking with Martha and said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, here's what's happening. Very first sign, it's to demonstrate the glory. Last sign, John 11, to show the glory. The implication is, that's the point of the signs. Beginning to end, to show the glory of God, so that you and I, as the reader, will have no doubt, who is this Jesus? He's God in the flesh. He is the Son of God. In the scripture, it is only God who can restore sight to the blind. It is only God who can walk upon the water. It is only God who can create more food out of nothing. So John is laying home the point that we will recognize who Jesus is by the signs. There will be that aha moment. 
in the early 90s, a young man graduated from the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. His name was Gerald Wilkins. His brother, Dominique, was already in the NBA and having an outstanding career. And Gerald was going to follow in those footsteps and was drafted by the New York Knicks. Gerald Wilkins is 6'6", 200 pounds, and he had a 13-year NBA career, averaging 13 points a game. He's not too shabby. Shortly after he was drafted, he and a friend of mine, my friend's name is Clint, decided to go and play some pickup ball down in northern Georgia, a small rural high school where people were gathering to play. When they walked in together, everybody, of course, looked at Gerald. He's 6'6". He kind of stood out, but nobody recognized exactly who he was. They divided up the teams. When Gerald's team, one person who was very full of himself went up to Gerald Wilkins and said, Listen, man, I know this is your first time playing here. It can be intimidating. So if you get scared, just throw me the ball. Okay? I'll, be, I'll get open. Don't panic, man. Okay? Don't panic. Said so Gerald Wilkins got the ball. The very first thing he did, he did this spin dribble move into the lane, jumped over a person, and dunked the basketball said at that moment, Clint said it was hilarious because everything stopped. And people just stood there staring. And somebody said, who are you? And he said, I'm Gerald Wilkins. What? The Gerald Wilkins? Yes. Just drafted by the Knicks. The moment he did something, everybody stopped and asked, who? That's the point of the signs. Water into wine? Who is this? That's the questions that we need to be asking. Because John wants to lay out these signs so that we will come to ask, who is Jesus? The signs will point us that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we have life in his name. That's his identity. That we have life there. That we come to believe. And here's the great thing. By reading this in signs, we are more blessed than those who actually saw them. Look back up to verse 29. Or actually verse 28 and 29. This is where Thomas has believed. He says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Church, these are written so that you and I, who did not see, can believe and be even more blessed. Because that's faith. He's promising us life. Life. It's what we long for, isn't it? You ever just get tired of the world? You ever get sick and tired of being sick and tired? That's that longing for life. I'm not just talking about eternal life in heaven. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. Do you know that life today? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.